They came for him finally in August 2015. They surrounded the house in Turlock where he was now living. He had been getting ready for some court appearances that morning. Carson behaved with characteristic surliness and defiance. Coming outside to face a SWAT truck and a street full of high-powered rifles, he scolded them. He called them jackasses. He told them they should be ashamed of themselves. He told them to shut up. It was a Friday morning at 7 o'clock. I was in the shower, and I could hear all this yelling through a megaphone. Anyway, I finished the shower, and then I put on my clothes quickly, and then they were all out in front with a SWAT team and a personnel carrier. We will not leave until the warrant is executed. Please exit the front door with your hands up, Frank Carson. Stop there. Put your hands up. Put your hands up. They kept screaming for me to put my hands up, and I wouldn't do it. Anyway, so I never did put my hands up. And I walked out there, and they kept screaming was there anybody else in the house and I kept saying am I under arrest and they wouldn't answer so I wouldn't answer them they told Carson he was in fact under arrest they took him back to the station and tried to steer him to an interrogation room he insisted that they just book him and put him in jail he wasn't about to talk anyway he walked in to have his photograph taken Mugshots are a stamp of shame, and the accused tend to look defeated and stricken, which very often makes them look guilty. They know they have arrived at the nadir of their lives. If it's a first-degree murder charge, it might mark your last day in the daylight. It would be the day you woke up free in your home and went to bed in the first of many cells, the last of which you die in. Carson stood in the booking room and looked toward the camera. Now officially accused of murder, now facing the fight of his life, he remembered the defiant smile one of his recent clients, A.J. Pontillo, had worn in his mugshot. He'd heard that it had gotten under the cop's skin. It had been a small way of asserting control in a position of total powerlessness. So as the camera clicked, Frank Carson put on his most carefree smile. It was an open-mouthed expression of happy surprise. With his fleshy face and jowls, his eyebrows darting above the rim of his thick glasses in jocular flight, he gave the impression of a hayseed who had won a new tractor. You would need to be told it was a mugshot to guess it. It showed a man so contemptuous of his tormentors that he refused to honor them with even a hint of fear or panic. To prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira, it cemented a sense of Carson's duplicitous facade. 
my initial reaction was definitely that he was setting up the, I'm just a good old country folksy country boy, like he used to do in all his cases, and he likes to put that out there. And when he turns around and he does all these things to these people, that shows a very different side of this man that the public doesn't necessarily see. I'd never been arrested before. This is the ultimate charge. And how this generally works is that once you've been arrested, I would never breathe air again. Never, ever. So that's the status of it. But I was always impressed with the fact that AJ had, had smiled, you know, into the camera and just looked those sons of bitches in the eye. And, and I resolved to do that, but I couldn't tell where the camera was. And I kind of had a half smile. All I wanted was to not look subservient and crawl like a dog, which is what they intended. From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Episode 4, Mugshots. I want to now introduce to you uh, the district attorney here in Stanislaus County, Birgit Flatiger. Good afternoon. I'd like to express my gratitude to all the various agencies that worked very well together on this very lengthy investigation. Uh, it took a lot of work, it took a lot of time, uh, and uh, it has finally come together. Carson was one of eight people arrested that day, the supposed spider at the heart of a great web of murder and evidence concealment. Also booked were Carson's wife and stepdaughter, the two brothers who ran the pop and cork liquor store, and to everyone's astonishment, three men who had worked for the California Highway Patrol. All had played some role authorities insisted in the death of scrap metal thief Corey Kaufman or in the effort to cover it up. It was not yet clear how the many disparate players, some of whom did not even know each other, were supposed to have carried off this crime. Alongside Flatiger and the sheriff at the press conference stood California Highway Patrol Commissioner Joe Farrow. He said his agency was devastated by the news that its employees had been arrested. But there was also reason for pride. This is a three-year-old case, and they worked this case through exhaustion, and they never gave up, even though it became extremely difficult. And I think that's important for all of us to realize is that the foundation of law enforcement is good, and that it's pure, and that men and women work extraordinarily hard to bring justice. And what they are doing here today is they're bringing justice to the Kaufman family. These events, uh, while very, very, very sad, uh, they're rare. Fox 40 has team coverage on this developing death investigation. We'll start with Kay Received, live in Modesto, with more on this years-long investigation. Kay? 
Stephen Ty Corey Kaufman went missing in 2012. His body was found a year later in 2013 by Hunter in Mariposa County. And today, two years later, nine people have been arrested in connection to his homicide. Frank Carson had been expecting his arrest for many months. Now he was locked up, and he was trying to make sense of the charges against him. So was everyone else. How did a defense attorney known for his distrust of local cops find himself accused of conspiring with three highway patrolmen he didn't even know? What was the nexus between Frank Carson and the patrolmen? The government's theory takes some explaining, but to start, let's go back to the Pop and Cork liquor store in Turlock. It was popular with local cops. Hey, buddy, how are you? Good, good, how are you? Among them were highway patrol officers who monitored long stretches of Highway 99. They dropped by during patrols to grab water or to use the bathroom. Bobby Atwal and his brother Dee, who ran the place, threw barbecues for the cops in the back lot and kept a small private party room. A police presence had the clear advantage of deterring shoplifters and robbers. And for the cops, it was a more comfortable place to unwind than local bars. They didn't have to worry about running into people they'd arrested or ticketed. The DA's office was convinced the Atwal brothers and their handyman Robert Woody had served as Frank Carson's muscle in eliminating the scrap metal thief. And so DA investigators were alarmed when they began eavesdropping on the brothers' phone calls and found them engaged in friendly, freewheeling conversations with the highway patrolmen. At the DA's office, suspicions were roiling. What did it mean? Were the patrolmen in on it as well? Were they doing Carson's bidding too? How did it add up? On July 9th, 2012, investigators eavesdropped on D. Atwal's conversation with a veteran highway patrolman named Eduardo Quintanar Jr., a seven-minute exchange that would haunt both men for years. Atwal appeared worried about possible robbers. He feared one might be putting trackers on his car. Quintanar told him he could enlist the handyman Woody, who went by the nickname 5-0, to check for trackers with a mirror. You can check your car. Fucking have five O going to there. Yeah, I'm going to. I have drove five O check every day. <laughs> yeah, just get a mirror. You can buy one with a mirror with the glass. Uh-huh. And you can look under there, brother. Show me. You know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking uh, Nah, brother, relax. You didn't do nothing wrong. Why you follow me? Yeah, he's trying to rob you, dude. Quintanar's tone suggested that he did not take his friend's worries about being followed that seriously. Don't stress. Relax. I go take a nap. <laughs> to the DA's office, this was not an innocent conversation between friends, and Quintanar's laughter is no evidence that he regarded it as a joke. Instead, authorities heard this as a conversation between a murder suspect and a cop who was, quote, explaining how to thwart investigative techniques. Atwal complained to Turlock Detective Frank Navarro about repeated visits from police. He insisted he'd said everything he knew. We told you how much we know. We don't know anything. Hey, D, there's a murder investigation that we're investigating. I don't care. I don't know anything. DA investigator Kirk Bunch jumped in. Well, we need information about a murder investigation, buddy. I told you how much I know. 
Investigators raided the Pop and Cork and found no evidence linking the brothers to Kaufman's disappearance. They did find some of Quintanar's guns and vials of Robert Woody's steroids. Quintanar told Diatwal to get rid of his handyman. The steroids looked bad. So fucking 5 dude, he's gonna cost you your score, man. Can't have him there any brother anymore, brother. You're gonna have to make a decision, man. Uh, say, hey, 5 I'm sorry, brother, but you can't be here no more. I'm sorry. The DA's office turned over what it had gathered about Quintanar to the California Highway Patrol, which launched an internal affairs investigation into the officer. They found some behavior that troubled them, such as Quintanar badmouthing a colleague. Quintanar was briefly suspended, then put back on the road, and told not to discuss his internal affairs case. Overhanging the murder investigation as it proceeded was Quintanar's anxiety about violating the CHP's order and his deep distrust of DA investigator Kirk Bunch, to whom he traced his trouble with his own agency. In May 2014, Bunch visited Quintanar's home when he wasn't there. In this phone call, Quintanar asks Bunch to please make an appointment with him through his CHP supervisors. Yeah, we're doing a criminal investigation, all right? Uh, so we don't have to notify anybody. Quintanar asked him to respect his home as he would respect Bunch's. In secretly recorded phone calls, Quintanar said he saw no upside in cooperating with what he perceived as Bunch's politically motivated probe. He didn't want to get in trouble with the CHP again. The Bunch guy's after me, man. What did yeah. he want? This is Quintanar in conversation with another cop, and his remarks were later cited in the warrant for his arrest. Quote, Quintanar resorts to trash-talking Bunch. Quintanar is trying to make the investigators look bad to other law enforcement officers. End quote. He wants, he wants to question me, dude. Well, he has no case, so he's got to um, charge the, the county for hours, you know, so he can eat. What an yeah. idiot. Yeah, I hope he doesn't fucking come back, dude. Man, I hope. But he's just waiting to see how far he can push me, dude. He better not come to my house. That'd be a big mistake. And in uniform, too. What a jackass. Why did it matter that a cop was privately trash-talking a DA investigator? Why was this scene as important enough to deserve mention in a warrant? This is one of many things I wanted to ask Bunch about, but he declined to speak to me citing pending litigation. When Bunch dropped by Quintanar's house again when he wasn't around, Quintanar's wife, Heather, made this call. Your no, friend Bunch stopped by, and he said did, something very disturbing. What did he say? All I said was, I don't have to talk to you, and I shut the door on his face, and he said, you might want to because your husband's going to be arrested. Your daughter heard this. I am not lying about anything. I told you everything, babe. I swear to God. Quintanar called a CHP sergeant to relay what Bunch had done. My wife's a mess, dude. She's crying. She's like, ask me, are are you sure? My wife, I mean, she's a mess, dude. Got it. I mean, why the hell would he go to my house? He's like a terrorist. This guy's just insane, man. Perhaps as hoped, Bunch's tactics were putting a strain on Quintanar's relationship with his wife. Ridiculousness, Eddie. I don't. Where is this coming from? I haven't done anything. We are good people. I know we are good people, babe. We work hard for our job. 
Our daughter is our number one priority. We pay our bills. We are responsible. This dude, don't listen to anything he has to say, babe. I didn't lie to you. You're my wife, okay? I didn't lie to you at all. This dude, he's not liking it because I don't need to talk to him. What do you want me to do? Make it stop. He's playing dirty. He's trying to get me in trouble. Okay? He has nothing, babe. He thinks I'm involved with Dean, Bobby, and those other guys. They think that I had something to do with that guy's missing. I didn't even know who the guy was until I read in the paper. I did not hurt anybody. I did not, I'm not a conspirator or anything. Bunch visited the home of Quintanar's father in the company of Modesto detective John Evers. We have is an honest guy. You know, he never, uh, he never gave any troubles. He never gave us any troubles. Any of my kids, you know, they all went to school. We're all professionals, thanks okay. God, you know, and, and uh, that's, that's the way my family is. Okay, you believe know? it or not, sir, we're, we're here trying to help your son, believe it or not. Okay. The day he came over, he says, don't worry about it, Dad. I says, I don't know anything, and, and, and if you said that, uh, that you got proof, yeah. and then what did you guys arrest him? And the only thing is with your son is he's avoiding us. He won't come and talk to us, okay? And, and it's, a, it's a crime? A crime? Yeah, not talking to you guys. Bunch and his team raided Quintanar's home. They found no physical evidence connecting him to Corey Kaufman's disappearance and death. Why were they so focused on Quintanar? What did they believe he had done exactly? Did you tell Dee that Robert Woody, that you called 5-0, should get a mirror? and check for trackers on cars for them. Did you give them after information when they knew that we were doing an investigation? I thought he was joking. I, had, I thought he was just fooling around with me, to tell you the truth. I mean, I had no idea of any of this. Okay, I tell you, I've listened to that recording, and there was no joking. You were giving him hints how to change up, you know, way to drive. You were telling him, you know, switch out cars. You were telling him to park his car in the back, and you are telling him to check for trackers. That's unacceptable. Right. That's why we're coming to you. I didn't know that there was any murder investigation or anything like that going on. You're trying to minimize the cue, and I'm just telling you, it's not going to work. The conversation in which Bunch claims there was no joking was, as you have heard, punctuated by Quentin R's laughter. All right, go take a nap. <laughs> Bunch now positioned himself as Quentin R's benefactor. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. You're trying to help me. Q, Q, I'm on your side. Believe it or not, I am on your side. Quintanar insisted he didn't know Frank Carson, nor the victim, Corey Kaufman. The DA's office was not satisfied. By saying he knew nothing, he was making, quote, false and minimizing statements. It's usually at this point in the story when I try to explain it to people that they say, wait, what? How did the DA go from investigating a defense attorney for the death of a scrap metal thief to monitoring the calls and raiding the properties of highway patrolmen? What link am I missing here? The tenuousness of this link is part of what's maddening and compelling about this case. To sum up, the DA's office was convinced that the Pop and Cork brothers had killed the thief as a favor to Carson. 
What helped to convince them? The vague and vacillating word of the former pop and cork handyman who'd been threatened with the death penalty if he didn't cooperate with cops. And so, because highway patrolmen hung out at the pop and cork and partied with the brothers who ran it, the patrolmen themselves came under suspicion. From the questions investigators were asking, it was evident that they believed these patrolmen were just too close to the Atwal brothers not to know something. And by this logic, when the patrolmen claimed not to know anything, they were part of a cover-up. This logic would have devastating consequences for the highway patrolmen. One of the patrolmen was Quintanar's friend and colleague, Scott McFarlane, also a CHP veteran. He worked the 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. shift, and then liked to swing by the pop and cork and hang out till midnight. Police were listening in when McFarlane told D. Atwal not to worry about investigators coming by. He thought they were private investigators looking for the missing thief, Corey Kaufman. Why are they coming after you guys? Why do they think you have something to do with it? They're, they're well, dumb. Yeah, just when they come in, it's on pound sand. McFarlane had an orchard and a barn with chickens, and he lived next door to where Corey Kaufman had lived on Johnson Avenue. He would see the scrap metal thief bike up and down the block. McFarlane said he thought he'd seen him biking on his street on the Sunday morning after he supposedly vanished. Everybody says he disappeared at a certain time. And I'm like, no, I talked to him after everybody's saying he disappeared. This conflicted with the state's established chronology, which was so crucial to building the case against Frank Carson. Investigators chose to interpret McFarland's remarks as, quote, a contrived statement to muddy the timeline of Kaufman's murder. Bunch went to McFarland's ranch and told him he was hiding something. We're just trying to get people on the witness bus, okay, before that witness bus closes its door and it's a runaway train. And people are going to put it together. You lived right next door to our victim, and they're going to put it together that you freaking frequent pop and cork. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you knew a little bit more information, and we're just trying to squeeze it all out, buddy. But I can almost reassure. Algae and Dalgy. When it comes down to when they're sitting at the table with 5-0, okay, and others... Okay, they're going to have a lot to tell. Okay, because at some point when they're looking at an LWAP offense, that's life without possible parole, they're all going to say stuff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if I if I remember anything, I'll tell you guys. I don't have a problem with it because, yeah. like, you know, I shoot, I'm not involved in this okay. murder yeah. in any way. The third and youngest patrolman to fall into the DA's crosshairs was Walter Wells. Wells was in his early 30s. He loved the pop and cork and went there often, and he pumped iron with the Atwal brothers. He was affable and almost comically strapping. The CHP could have profitably put him in a recruitment ad. He told me that working at the highway patrol was his dream job. To become a CHP officer, it meant the world to me. Um, It was everything I ever wanted to do at an early age in life. An agency that was very prestigious, well-known, elite agency that stood out amongst all other agencies. Wells could put 500 miles on his Crown Victoria during a 12-hour shift, catching drunks on Highway 99 and patrolling the long, dark roads between ranches and dairies in the county's unincorporated areas. One moment you're on the freeway in a pursuit, and the next moment you're on the side road driving through an almond orchard, you know, chasing that subject. It's never the same each day. 
My favorite part of the job was just the gratification, the, the sense of joy that came from being out there doing the right thing, you know, helping the motoring public. What inflamed the DA's suspicions about Wells? He had been with Bobby Atwal and his brother D at the Pop and Cork, a mile from Carson's junk lot, on the night the DA believed the brothers had killed Kaufman there. But witnesses had been in Wells's company all night and said they saw nothing suspicious. His girlfriend was with him in the Pop and Cork's back room, where she remembered him getting drunk on shots of Patron. Also present was Wells's sister and his sister's husband, a career naval officer. They were in town from Washington State because Wells's father had just died. For Wells, the week was a busy blur of visitors and of chores in preparation for the memorial service. This seemed to make it an unlikely week to participate in a murder. In an ordinary case, this might amount to a powerful alibi. But the DA claimed to find significance in Wells' cell phone records. In the days after Kaufman disappeared, Kaufman's cell phone, perhaps carried by his killers, traveled around Turlock. The DA claimed the phone intersected with places associated with Wells, like his home. At times, Wells' phone and Kaufman's phone were hitting off the same cell tower. The DA dismissed the innocuous explanation that Turlock was a small place with just a few cell towers and posited the theory that Wells had been carrying the dead victim's phone. For what conceivable purpose? To throw off investigators. The reason the DA targeted Wells, defense attorneys came to believe, was his closeness to the Atwalls. He must know something and faced with enough pain Perhaps he might be compelled to talk. Investigator Bunch seemed baffled and irate that Wells, a lawman, continued to hang out at the Poppincork even after he knew the Atwal brothers were under investigation. Wells's answer was that the brothers were his friends and he knew they hadn't done anything. Wells filed a complaint against Bunch and he was caught on a wiretap calling Bunch a clown. We're kind of targets that He's trying to, you know, work something on us and then trying to get us in trouble with our department, so. As the investigation intensified, McFarlane reached out to Wells. The DA was secretly listening in and recording. Wells said it felt like a vendetta. He believed it had become personal for Bunch. Um, I don't know what he thinks I know because I don't know anything, so therefore I can't give him any information about anything, you know? I know. Because... You know, something of that severity. If I knew something like that, yeah, I'd come forward regardless, you know. But I don't know anything. You know, I'm not going to jeopardize my, my family, my career, and everything else for something like that, for keeping a secret. To authorities in Stanislaus County, this was not an exchange between two blameless highway patrol officers who were puzzled and exasperated by the intense and inexplicable attention of Investigator Bunch and his team. Instead, it was an exchange between co-conspirators working to shape their story. According to the warrant, quote, As an investigator, I know that co-conspirators talk to each other about the tactics investigators are using and the questions that are being asked. Finally, more than three years after Corey Kaufman disappeared, 
warrants were readied, and SWAT teams assembled. Around town, it was no mystery that the DA had targeted Carson and the Atwalls for potential arrest. But few suspected that three lawmen would also be taken away in cuffs. Nine arrested in connection to a death investigation stemming from the 2012 disappearance of a Turlock man. A well-known Modesto defense attorney is now facing murder charges in Corey Kaufman's death. Three CHP officers have also been arrested following a lengthy undercover investigation. The case was widely reported, featuring rows of mugshots in which the accused wore predictably rock-bottom expressions with the supposed ringleader Frank Carson in the middle with that goofy smile. The Daily Mail in the UK compared the case to True Detective Season 2, the season set in a fictional California city steeped in murder and corruption. It reminded others of a plotline in Better Call Saul. The story as presented by Stanislaus County authorities had irresistible appeal, with roots in beloved film noir tropes, it featured investigators who had labored heroically to expose a web of crooks with badges. It featured a crime family that hid behind the law license of a patriarch who was called, ominously, Uncle Frank. You, so you think Carson was the puppet master? Absolutely. No doubt in my mind, without a doubt. I don't just think it, I know it from all the evidence that I was presented with during my evaluation of it, absolutely. And the other thing that actually solidified it for me too was the way he acted about it all. At every turn, he acted like a guilty man. He attacked people, he tried to undermine the integrity of the evidence through bullying. This is Prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira again. The very first day we ever had an encounter that was at the bail hearing. It was pretty much the first time I see him, you know, other than the arraignment. He walks up to me and he got right in my face and called me all kinds of names while he's in custody. And other than the names, which could just be sheer anger, sure, I get that. What he said to me was, you're an amateur. That's what he wanted to convey to me. So he was telling me right there from day one, I'm going to beat you because I know I'm, I know more than you and I'm going to be better than you and you're not going to catch me. It was a real moment of catch me if you can. Do you think that that is what explains the mugshot? Oh, absolutely. It explains the mugshot. It explains why he ran for DA. Carson saw his wife in custody on the morning they were arraigned. Years later, the memory seemed to wound Carson still. I got in this little elevator, came up, and anyway, there was Georgia, and she was in a red jumpsuit. And I was in a red jumpsuit. She said, hi, honey. She said, you look good in stripes. And I said, so do you. And all I said is, I'm so sorry. They took us in the courtroom. And they arraigned us. It was stupid. 
But anyway, we got through it. At the bail hearing, Ferreira called his wife, Georgia Filippo a danger to the public, an aider and abetter of Carson's scheme to catch and kill a thief on their property. They were all acting as a collective in this conspiracy, she told the judge. The judge set her bail at $4.5 million. Watching my wife be crucified in that, that bail hearing, and then she gets $4.5 million. When I heard that they were investigating the murder on our, allegedly that happened on our property, I just thought, well, they'll find out who really did it, you know, and they'll move on, and they didn't. It's like the, the sand goes out from under your feet. I was so, so surprised, and I landed in, in jail. It goes against everything that I expected from my life. I've always tried to be good. I just, I was surprised, I believe, in law and order. And Georgia had grown up in Modesto and worked as Carson's secretary in the mid-1990s, and they had been married now for 15 years. Her sense of humor was wry and ironic, and the DA had used that against her. They took things that my daughter and I said on our text messages, and I'm just, I just feel so bad about that, you know, and we, the way I talk, you know, I'm dry. And they thought, well, we'll arrest George and Chrissy, and Frank will confess to everything, you know. Despite the steep bail, Georgia had some family property, including a walnut ranch she co-owned with her brother, which allowed her to raise the collateral to bail out. I was in jail for 50 days, I think. And it was, uh, I did a lot of reading, and I took a morning nap, an afternoon nap, and an evening nap. I slept a lot. <laughs> I just didn't know what else to do. But it's some, it just wears you out. It's a toxic kind of environment. Carson was held on no bail. He said the case was a pack of falsehoods, starting with his supposed nickname. The only people who call me Uncle Frank are my nieces and nephews, and they don't even say uncle. The connotation is that you're the powerful guy that does people's favors and fixes things, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. A, God, a godfather-type character. Yeah, see, that's, it's just all a fabrication. It's a creation by them that that, uh, you know, we're powerful and we're a, we're a big shot. Anybody that knows me would know that we the last thing we do is act like a big shot. On the day of the arraignment, Carson was taken in his jail coveralls from his cell and driven to a courtroom. There, he sat with the CHP officers said to be part of the complicated conspiracy he'd masterminded. He said he had never met them before. We just didn't know who these people were. Walter Wells was charged with murder and held on $10 million bail. He remembered meeting Carson. They were in a back room at the courthouse and Carson looked at him with tears in his eyes. At this point, I had no idea who Frank Carson was. I never met him. I've never even seen him. I was trying to understand why I was there in the first place. Um, all I saw across me was an older gentleman, and I remember him saying to me that, you're the CHP officer that was involved in this. I'm so sorry. This is all because of me. They're out to get me. I mean, what do you say? 
The Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Hi, it's your host, Christopher Gofford again. Here's a reminder that LA Times subscriber support makes podcasts like this one possible. Subscribe now to get exclusive bonus episodes that will give you the story behind this show. We will share interviews with experts who will weigh in on the case, and we will play extra tape that sheds light on important parts of our story. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.